right, praise God. If you will, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and um, we're going to talk about, this, this may be a one-hit one wonder. Have you ever heard that term, uh, songs that were famous, but then you never heard from the band again? One-hit wonder. This might be a one-hit wonder. I don't know that I'm going to do a series out of this topic or not. We'll see. Uh, the Holy Spirit leads me week by week. I usually don't have my, my teachings planned out weeks and months in advance. I go week by week. And so the Holy Spirit may direct me otherwise next week or the week after. We'll see about that. But um, today we're going to be talking about the hallmarks of revival and understanding the time. So as you're getting there to Acts chapter 2, I just want to say that um, these are interesting times that we're living in, huh? <laughs> you know, I do believe that God is on the move and doing some powerful things in these dark times. Wouldn't you agree? So today we're going to be talking about understanding the times with a specific focus on um, the hallmarks of revival since we seem to be in the midst of it right now, even as we speak, as we see these revivals pop, pop up all over the country right now. Of course, we know about the Asbury revival pictured there on the screen, uh, but that has since spilled over into dozens of other locations, including Lee University, Indiana Wesleyan, and now, believe it or not, Baylor University and also Purdue University. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, lo look at this caption on this news story here. It says, news reports of revival, 21 baptisms at Purdue, evangelist chastises critics. Because there are some critics to these revivals that are saying all kinds of Stuff that I won't get into right now that I don't think is legitimate. Anyway, uh, it, it, it continues. The, the uh, evangelist says, everywhere people are hungry, God is willing to move. Yes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let's go ahead and read this master text. Now, this is probably the longest master text I've ever read in this church before. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me so we can honor the word of God and to just exercise your legs a little bit. All of you are strong in the Lord and the power of his might, so that won't bother you, right? So uh, let me see here. Let me turn back to my, my master slides. So we're going to read verses 1 through 16 and then verses um, 36 through 40. So are you ready? Here we go. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a, a, a sound like the blowing of a mighty wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one, get this, each one heard them speaking in their own language. So history records that there was about 16 different dialects present on that day at the day of Pentecost. And, and if you didn't know this, the, the, all the Jews were dispersed all over the, that part of the world at that time. And on the day of Pentecost, all the faithful Jews would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Well, by that time, they were speaking all different kinds of languages now. And so, so 
Verse 6 again, when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Now they were speaking in these, these, these heavenly tongues, not probably even knowing what they were saying, but everyone was hearing each in their own individual language, at least 16 different languages at the same time. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? And then it goes on to list some of those regions they were from. Um, and then in verse 11, uh, skip down to that, but verse 11, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. Yep, there's critics in every revival. Some, however, made fun of them and, and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what, the, what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Let's go down to verse 36, if you will. All of it's good, all of it's important for the sake of time. Skip down to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And all you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation." And actually, let's go on and read verse 41 as well. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise God. Woohoo! <laughs> so, on that note, um, let's go back to uh, this scene for a moment. Um, I want to make a, a point here that this scene in Acts 2 that we just read about wasn't really a revival per se, but was more of an awakening because something was being birthed that never existed before, namely sinners hearing the message of the Lord Jesus Christ in mass because of emboldened believers that were out preaching that message and people getting saved as a result. So this was a brand new thing. So awakening and revival could be kind of two different things, but we're going to kind of use them synonymously this morning. So I want to make this point as we get started here. Not every revival in history has ever looked exactly the same. Uh, yet there are co some common denominators with revival. But we, before we get to those common denominators, let me define for you what revival is. What is meant by that term revival. Well, you can look at the screen. It's an act or instance of reviving the state of being revived, such as 
renewed attention or interest in something, or a period of renewed religious interest or passion. Okay? So that's what revival is. So when you hear the term revival, uh, religiously speaking, that's what it's referring to, a period of renewed religious interest or passion. All right, so then the three characteristics of the Acts 2 revival or awakening would probably be a better term in that instance. There's three characteristics of that that we're going to uh, use as kind of a launching place for our teaching this morning. And that's this, supernatural encounters with God. Supernatural encounters with God. The next one is that that awakening was noticed by a curious world, wasn't it? It was noticed by a curious world. And then lastly, those touched by God become emboldened to preach his word. Those were the characteristics of that Acts 2 awakening. But these are some of the common denominators that we see in every revival that's occurred down through history. And there's been dozens of them. So let me list just a few of those, just a handful of some of those revivals for you and some of the characteristics that we saw in those revivals. So first of all, we see listed on the screen there, the Jesus Revolution. It's just curious, uh, how many of you have seen that movie, The Jesus Revolution, yet? Yeah, so most of you. Very good. I would encourage you, those that have not seen that, go see it. I mean, wow, what a great movie. What a great movie. It, it, it tells the story of the, uh, that, the, the revival, the Jesus Revolution, they called it, that happened back in the early 1970s. Uh, and was, it, mostly, it affected young people. And specifically, it really impacted a demographic known as the hippies. You know, the, the, the drug, sex, and rock and roll folks. It really impacted those folks. Praise God. So that was the Jesus Revolution in the 1970s. Then there was a, 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 a revival that some of you know as the Azusa Street Revival. And that was confined to a physical location in Los Angeles from 1906 to 1915. And it was marked by unbelievable signs and wonders. I've heard some stories about Azusa Street that blow your mind. You know, limbs growing out, wild stuff. And these were all documented and uh, just crazy stuff, just uh, unbelievable miracles in this period um, in the early 1900s. And it was also marked by uh, gifts of the Spirit. Now, there was also an awakening in Ireland in the 4th century, and that's best known for St. Patrick because St. Patrick was very instrumental in that awakening and that revival in uh, Ireland that was mostly pagan back at that time. And that was not, that, that uh, particular revival was not a sudden event, but it was a long and arduous process of the evangelistic efforts of a small group of people that eventually were able to evangelize nearly that entire nation of Ireland, okay? The Welsh revival in Wales in 1904 was marked by repentance and a turning away from evil. And like the Irish awakening, it affected an entire nation and spilled over into other surrounding nations. And that revival was marked by worship 
and also other supernatural manifestations or miracles. That was commonplace in that revival as well. Now, back to the Asbury revival, it was also confined to a physical location, much like Azusa Street, but has since spread to other areas, as we've said. It was marked mostly by a renewed passion for repentance, uh, prayer, and also worship. Now, I want to say something about, I mean, I only listed just a few revivals. There's been dozens of them down through the ages in both America and different parts of the world. But every revival seems to be marked by one thing, and that's this. Every revival seems to be marked by critics. Every revival seems to be marked by critics. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want to show you a picture of some of the kids the college kids at the Asbury Revival. And I want you to see if there's anything at all in this picture that you can be critical about. Look at that picture of those, those young kids, young ladies in this case, arm in arm in a circle, praying, repenting, seeking God. You see anything wrong with that? I don't see a thing wrong with that. I see a lot that's good about that. Praise the Lord. Amen. Now, I want to make another point about this, too. Um, you know, if you seek revival, you'll get performance. If you seek revival, you'll get performance. But if you seek Jesus, you'll get rev- revival. If you seek Jesus, you'll get revival. So, therefore, revival cannot be manufactured. Revival can't be manufactured. See, folks, listen. Um, when true revival re- occurs, revival isn't even the goal. Jesus is the goal, and revival is the byproduct of that. So the revival that began at Asbury University, uh, that started because students just humbly gathered after chapel to continue to seek God in prayer and repentance and worship. They just continued, they just, they just rushed the altar and continued to pray and repent and worship God. So they didn't plan this. It just happened as a result of, of God responding to their hunger for him. So if you want revival, if you want revival in this church, in this city, or your school, we need to do something similar to that. Uh, go into your room, shut the door, and cry out to Jesus. And ask him to show you and show us his glory. Gather your friends, your Christian friends in your home or uh, your church or your school and begin to cry out to Jesus. Cry out his name. See, the Bible tells us that when we seek him passionately, not passively, but when we seek him passionately, we will find him. When we call to him passionately, he will answer. And When he fills you with himself, and when you seek him like that consistently, he will. And when he fills you with himself, the world around you will become curious about what you have. Now, now listen, not everyone is going to want what you have. We know that. But many will. But for those that are curious about what you have and are responsive to what you have, you will become like a light in a dark place to many. And you will shine the light of the glory of God to those who have been overcome by the darkness. Praise God. 
But in order for that to happen, listen, but in order for that to happen, there has to be people that are so on fire for Jesus that others are attracted to the light of that fire. And that's why Charles Wesley said this, John Wesley rather, that's why John Wesley said, I light myself on fire and others come to watch me burn. Isn't that a great quote? <laughs> now, some other characteristics of revival here. Uh, you know, uh, that picture right there is also from the Asbury uh, revival. And one of the other criticisms against the Asbury revival is there didn't seem to be a lot of preaching and teaching that went on uh, throughout that process. But you know what? It was actually sparked by a very simple message on the love of God. You see that guy in the upper left-hand corner, just dressed very modestly and very plain? He preached a very simple message on the love of God, and bam, a revival broke out that day. It was based upon preaching and teaching and people's response to the simple message of the love of God. Praise the Lord. So some other characteristics of revival then is while not every revival is centered around a focal speaker, there will be proclamations of God's word in some way. There will be proclamations of God's word in some way. And there were lots of different testimonies and people sharing uh, throughout the course of uh, that revival. It was kind of an open mic kind of style. So there were proclamations of God's word in some way. Um, next, a true revival will create a hunger for God's word, repentance, and lasting fruit in the lives of the people that it touches. So those are some characteristics and some outflows of revival. See, if revival doesn't produce those things, you just had an emotional experience. If it doesn't, if, if, if there's not some lasting results that go beyond the, the revival itself, then you just had a, an emotional experience. It must produce some fruit, some lasting fruit, if it's a true revival or if you got truly touched by it. All right? And I believe the, the Asbury revival did that, and so, do, so does you know, all the revivals that I mentioned had long-lasting effects. And here's an, another characteristic of revival. Every revival involves imperfect people. Therefore, Revival can be messy at times. Let me explain what I mean by that. See, every revival involves people, all of which are imperfect and prone to emotionalism. Okay? So revival, therefore, can be messy at times. We could say that there's no perfect revival. Yet, amidst the messiness, there are times that God is truly touching his people and reviving his people. Now, speaking of messiness, let's deal with the issue of emotionalism for a moment. And look on the screen. This is a primary point this morning, that emotion is a natural result of encountering a supernatural God. Emotion is a natural result of encountering a supernatural God. Back in 1998, there was an animated movie called The Prince of Egypt, and if you remember that, uh, those of you that are my age and had kids that you took to that movie, The Prince of Egypt was an animated movie, but I loved that movie. I really loved that movie. And there's a scene in that movie where Moses is uh, confronted with God at the burning bush. 
And there's something about that scene. I almost got emotional during this scene just watching it. It was an animated movie. And I almost got emotional watching this scene because Moses is caught up in the presence of God. Once he, he gets confronted with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, and he's speaking with God through this burning bush, and God calls him to take uh, his, his word, his message to Pharaoh. And it just the, the, he's just enraptured by this experience. And I remember how they portrayed Moses in that scene at the very end when God kind of, the presence of God kind of dissipates. And, and I just remember the look on Moses' face as they portrayed it. There's just like this bewilderment, but this, this enraptured feeling of love, uh, uh, the expression on his face and a tear coming down his cheek. It's like, I just encountered God. And it was emotional for him. And I thought they did a great job portraying that because I'll bet that was very similar to what happened. When you encounter the living God, a supernatural God, you're going to have an emotional response to that. Praise God. So I want to tell you that uh, revered leaders of the faith had encounters with God that led to emotional outbursts. Now, you're looking at the screen there of a picture of Dwight L. Moody, who is a highly revered uh, leader of the faith from uh, generations or decades past, uh, highly respected leader, very intelligent. Um, but I want you to read the words of Dwight L. Moody when he had his own encounter with God. Look at what it says. Let's read it together. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day, I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. What's that mean? It's like, Lord, this is awesome, but it's almost too intense for me. I almost can't take this much. And he had to ask him to stay his hand. Now, Dwight L. Moody was not a person that was known for being given to emotionalism. I mean, look at that picture of that guy. Does that look like an emotional guy? <laughs> Yet he had an encounter with God that he couldn't even put into words. Okay? I want to uh, share with you the testimony of Charles Finney, yet another very highly intelligent and gifted leader, and yet an another person who was not given to just outbursts of emotionalism. But let's read his testimony together. As I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through me. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. I've had a few of those. Not many. But I've had a few of those. I've had God touch me like that before. And I think many of you have as well. I do want to make a qualifying remark, though. If you haven't had an experience like that, you know, we walk by faith and not by feelings. But there are encounters with God that are available. There are encounters with God that are possible that go beyond just the faith 
experience, God will show you his love. And if you haven't had an experience like that, I would encourage you to ask God to show you an experience of his love. Have an encounter with God. Okay? Have an encounter with God. I want to make two points before I go any further. You know, first, my, my primary point here is, once again, um, uh, that feelings aren't always necessary because we walk by faith and not by feelings or our senses. Um, however, I'm trying to communicate that the need for wanting to be so close to God um, that we forsake the, uh, the routines of our ordinary behavior and seek hard after God with all of our hearts. That's what Dwight L. Moody said preceded his experience. He said he was crying all the time that he would have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And it finally came after a certain period of time. So again, I want to say this again, I'm trying to communicate the need for wanting to be so close to God that we forsake the routines of our ordinary behavior in order to seek God with all of our hearts. Secondly, the second point I want to make before we go any further is that in the final analysis, an honest approach to the Bible and church history confronts us with the following fact, that an unwillingness to have our emotions impacted and affected by God leads to limiting God's working in our lives. And my plea here in asking that we give God room and space to uh, work in our whole soul, including our mind and emotions, isn't a plea for emotionalism, folks. Hear me clearly. It's not a plea for emotionalism. It's only an encouragement for a heightened passion for God as we train our perception of God to be more alert. Did you hear what I said? It's an encouragement for a heightened passion for God as we train our perception of God to be more alert. Well, how do we train our perception of God to be more alert? Well, for one thing, we honor Him as we gather together and when we, it's time to worship, we engage. We engage. You know, there's one thing that's really disappointed me as a pastor over the years, and that's the low level of honor that people tend to give God during worship. I remember one Sunday having to run the soundboard because none of the other sound guys were available on this particular Sunday. So I was back there running the board in the back of the room, and being there in the back of the room, I was able to see what everyone was doing during worship. And uh, my heart just sank as I saw people on their cell phones, uh, totally distracted and disengaged with what was going on at the moment. I've also seen people standing during worship, nursing their food or drinks or otherwise unengaged with what was happening at the moment in honoring God. And then people wonder why God doesn't seem to be more present in their lives, their families, or their businesses from day to day. See, if, if we want our perception of God, ladies and gentlemen, to be sharper, if we want him to be more present in our lives, we have to honor him. Amen. Doesn't the word of God tell us, those who honor me, I will honor. 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. 
Well, other ways that we heighten our awareness of God, we discussed in our last series on abiding. See, we simply give Him more of our attention by abiding with Him moment by moment, day by day. And this involves attention to His Word and other disciplines of the faith. But having said that, I want to quote Pastor Jack Hayford here, the late Pastor Jack Hayford. He went to be with the Lord a few months ago. Um, in his book, A Passion for Fullness, A Passion for Fullness. And he says this, Perhaps God is far more interested in our personal passion for him than he is our academic perceptions about him. Let me elaborate on on that for a moment. This is not to say that the word of God is not important. Of course not. The, The word of God is our, the bedrock of our faith, folks. But I've known lots of people over the years who could quote the Bible, but whose knowledge of the Bible didn't seem to produce any passion or personal brokenness before the Lord, but only spiritual smugness or narrow-mindedness, much like the Pharisees of Jesus' time. You know, it seems like that some people, when they get some Bible knowledge, all they want to do is argue points of doctrine rather than allow that word of God to teach them more about themselves and teach them more about God and elevate their their knowledge of God and their experience with God. Am I making sense? See, in being students of the Word, we must allow the Word of God to ignite a fire in us, ladies and gentlemen. And that's only accomplished by seeking and asking for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. See, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you read the Bible, you don't even know what you're reading. You can read the Bible and it make absolutely no impact on you, sort of like the Pharisees of Jesus' time. They studied the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew them by heart. But yet, when the Messiah that the Old Testament Scriptures were talking about was standing in front of them face to face, they either didn't recognize Him or they rejected Him because He didn't look like what they wanted Him to look like. So the Word of God, in their case, only produced pride and spiritual smugness and 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 spiritual elitism. And you know what Jesus said to them about that. You're whitewashed tombs. You clean yourself up on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of corruption and dead men's bones. When you pick up the Word of God, this is how how I pray every time I pick up the Word of God, because I know I'm carnal. I know I'm just a man. I know I have limited understanding. Here's what I say. I say, Lord, as I'm about to read your Word, I pray that you would give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray, O Lord, that you would show me great and wonderful things that I do not know. Pray a prayer like that before you read the Word of God, and the Word will begin to come alive to you. Rather than opening up and going, What's that about? I mean, how does that apply to me? Then all of a sudden, you can be going through books like Amos, for Pete's sake, and go, oh, there's a God in heaven. I'm going to tell you a story. This is a true story. There was a person one time who read in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a verse in the book of Ecclesiastes that's sort of a, a strange verse. It says, whether a tree falls in the forest to the right or to the left, that's where it lays. Okay, 
I heard a story, I'm serious, I heard a story that somebody picked that up and, and they read that, that one verse, that one verse impacted them so much that they broke into tears and there's a God in heaven, I need to be saved. I'm serious. The word of God has power. But you can't approach it as just an academic book. It's a living, breathing word of God. Okay? And when you pray like that, Lord, help me to understand this. Then the word of God will ignite a passion in you. And it won't just result in spiritual smugness and elitism. Am I making sense? Praise the Lord. All right. I'm going to go on to another aspect now of uh, revival, another characteristic of of revival, and every revival is marked by zeal and travail. Now, we all know what the word zeal means. It means passion, enthusiasm, etc., but what, what does that word travail mean? Well, it's a term meaning to labor hard, like a woman in labor. When a woman's in labor, she's travailing. There's a, a spiritual kind of travailing in prayer. See, in the Bible, That word travail often referred to someone praying or interceding fervently, sometimes in painful sorrow. It carries with it the idea of prolonged exertion. It carries with it the idea of prolonged exertion. See, I've seen my wife Donna travail in prayer before, and let me tell you something. There is nothing dignified or attractive about it. I'm serious. I've seen her crying out loud to God, crying, lying on the floor, crying out to God with these groanings that seem to come up from the depths of her belly. Do you know what I'm talking about? It didn't even sound like Donna. It's loud, it's undignified, and it's effective. I want to show you a verse that relates to that. It's out of Matthew eleven twelve. This is actually on the front of your bulletin. I'm going to explain what this means. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence, and the violent seize it. What's that mean? It means people of passion are pressing in to the things of God. People that are passive, they're not going to experience the deeper things of God if they even get in at all. They're not going to experience the deeper things of God. But if you want to experience the deeper things of God, if you want to hear from God, if you want to have an encounter with God, if you want God to answer your prayers, there's going to be travail in some instances. Travail is a form of prayer that sometimes you just feel like you have no other choice. And travailing prayer is effective prayer. So from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God is taken by that kind of spiritual violence, if you will, where you just will not give up until you get your answer. And the violent seize it. Another version says the violent take it by force. The violent take it by force. Don't give up. Travail. Some perseverance in seeking God is required. Listen to me. You all live in a world where the current is going completely against where you want to try to get to in your walk with God. And if you're not a person of spiritual violence, if you want to use that term, that current's going to sweep you away. If you're not somebody who is willing to fight the good fight of faith, roll up your spiritual sleeves and fight the good fight of faith, you're going to get swept away by the current. You have to take it by force. 
taken by violence, and the violent seize it. I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. As long as our dignity and Americanized version of sophistication are our highest priorities, we will never experience revival or have deeper encounters with God. See, every revival is marked by people who abandon their dignity, sorry, who abandon their dignity for something higher and deeper. There's a book by Bill Gothard that came out about 20 years ago, and I read it back then, and I just reread it in one sitting. It's a short little book. Just reread it in one sitting yesterday. It's called The Power of Crying Out When Prayer Becomes Mighty. If you've not read that little book, I highly recommend it. It's about travail. It's about travailing in prayer. I highly recommend that book. You know, some examples of travailing prayer. You know, the woman with the issue of uh, blood abandoned her sophistication to rudely press through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. She took it by force. In 1 Samuel 1, a woman by the name of Hannah abandoned her pristine appearance to cry in the temple as she prayed for a son, and the priest who saw her accused her of being drunk. Folks, listen. Samuel Chadwick says, The prayer that prevails is not the work of lips and fingertips. It is the cry of a broken heart and the travail of a stricken soul. Hallelujah. Let me give you some more examples. In Luke chapter 7, the formerly immoral woman abandoned protocol when she barged into a house where Jesus was and interrupted everything to cry at his feet. And Jesus said that her sacrifice would be told wherever the gospel is preached. That prophecy came true because it's taking place right now. Now, I want to say something about men versus women here for just a moment on this point. You know, I can think of several examples in the Bible of women who were willing to abandon their dignity to go after God with this kind of passion, but I couldn't think of very many men off the top of my head. Why is it that women and little children are willing to be so outwardly responsive to God in many cases, but most men are not? for the most part. Well, David was one of the exceptions, by the way, King David. You know, King David was a very expressive worshiper, very expressive prayer, but he was a manly man, a man of war, wasn't he? Yet this manly man was a very expressive worshiper and prayer. But even David had a wife. I mean, his worship at one time was so expressive, it offended even his wife. And she was so offended by it, she had a few words for him. And the Bible tells us that God closed her womb because of it. So the roles were kind of reversed there, weren't they? Okay? So there's something about passionate prayer and passionate worship, ladies and gentlemen, that attracts the attention of God. And there's something about being critical about passionate worship that greatly displeases God. Did I lose you on that one? Okay. So listen, folks, if we want to move of God, we have to consider breaking out of our norm. 
We want to move of God. We have to consider breaking out of our norm. All right, so let me deal with a a possible um, objection here about what I'm saying so far. Uh, What about excesses and fanaticism, some might ask? Well, that's a legitimate question. It it really is. It's a a legitimate concern. It is. See, I I was raised in more of the Pentecostal and charismatic streams, and nothing wrong with that. I'm glad that I had that upbringing. But, you know, in some of the more expressive styles of worship and um, the use of the gifts of the Spirit, sometimes there are excesses. I admit that. I've seen my share of excesses and weirdness over the years, believe me. But I share the sentiment of Jack Hayford on this point. So let me quote Jack Hayford again, because he has a really interesting thing to say about this. So let's read his words together. As a teenager, I answered God's call to ministry. Because I was a result of them, I committed to a ministry allowing for and expecting Christ's miracles, signs, and wonders. Even though I have often been disturbed by excesses and fanaticism among some who exercise such gifts, I've stayed in the community because I found that for every instance of excess, there are a hundred examples of depth, reality, and divine power. Hallelujah. That's why I've stayed in the community too. Because I've seen some things that, man, if uh, the Holy Spirit didn't deal with me to help me to achieve some degree of balance, some of the wacky stuff I've seen would cause me to catapult in the other direction. And it actually did for a while. We went to a church for a while after we, we stepped down from worship ministry in a church that we were at for about uh, 10 years. Um, you know, I just, I just saw some stuff that was, I thought to, at the time was just kooky. And so we catapulted in, in the other direction and wound up at a church where my intellect would never have to be challenged again on some of these things. My intellect would never have to be disturbed. Let me say it that way. But then after being in that church for a while, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I'm hearing some things here that I've never heard before. Let me go to the scriptures and find out what the scriptures say about that. And then, then reading the scriptures, I'm like, that's not what the word of God says. And so I had to come back to kind of middle ground. Yeah, I want to avoid the excesses, but I don't want to like homogenize and pasteurize God's word either, for goodness sake. Yeah. So, yeah, so let's be open to a move of God. Let's be discerning in what's excessive and and kooky and unbiblical, but let's also be embracing of everything that the word of God does say. Can you agree with me on that? All right, so I'll close, or I'll start to come to a close here by asking you a question. So as you look at that image on the screen there of of deep space, and you imagine a God big enough to make the infinite galaxies, do you think that perhaps there's more of God to know and experience than what you currently know and have experienced? Hello? Well, it might take some effort on our part, ladies and gentlemen, because seeking is an action word. Seeking is an action word. And that's why James 4, 8 says, to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He meets you where you are. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
And Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's not passivity, ladies and gentlemen. That's a strenuous pursuit of God. That's what that looks like. And that's what's happening that's sparking some of these revivals that, that started in Asbury and has spilled over into other areas. It's a passionate pursuit of God that sparked these things. God is just honoring their hunger for him. Praise the Lord. You know, folks, listen, if you don't feel near to God right now, whose fault is that? You're right. You know, you don't necessarily have to be in a supercharged revival meeting to feel close to God. Although that can certainly help, by the way. You know, when you're in a meeting where the presence of God is so thick that you can almost cut it with a knife, I mean, you're seeing miracles and signs and wonders break out and salvations and deliverances from demonic oppression. You're going to feel closer to God in a, in a meeting like that. So I, I do acknowledge that. But you don't necessarily have to have a supercharged revival meeting to feel close to God. You can draw near to God all on your own. And that's why... God called us to be revival makers, not revival chasers. Now, again, I want to qualify. If you hear of a revival meeting where miracle signs and wonders are going on and the, and the presence of God is, is just so permeable, I mean, I don't have a problem. Go sit in that place. Maybe you'll get free from bondage. Maybe you'll, you'll experience something that changes you for the rest of your life. I'm not against that. But there's people that I've met that over the years I've referred to them as revival junkies. They're looking for the next word, the next revival, and they're jumping from place to place trying to find... Look, the Apostle Paul, as an example, revival followed him everywhere he went. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, there was either a riot or a revival. <laughs> right? So you can make revival wherever you go. All goes back to how hungry you are. Now, as I start to uh, bring this to a close here in a minute, um, I just want to say this. Uh, I, I, sometimes I have vain imaginations about my preaching. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, sometimes I imagine people saying to themselves, well, Pastor Andy, you know, why can't you just preach a nice message and give us a little Bible instruction and leave it at that? Why all this talk about going hard after God all the time? Well, I'll tell you why. Here's the reason. It's because perilous times require and call for a passionate pursuit of God. As the hordes of hell are unleashed on this planet like never before, unless you're inclined to pursue God more than your TV, your sports, or your computer, you may find that even though you are in Christ, that in life... The devil is eating your lunch and popping the bag, so to speak. You're getting slapped around by life, even though you're in Christ. See, when your marriage is hurting, you need to pursue God like never before. And if your spouse won't do it, you at least do it. But it's better when you do it together. 
When your health is suffering, pursue God. When your emotions are demolished, pursue God. When your finances are a mess, pursue God. When your plans have collapsed, pursue God. When you seem spiritually dry, pursue God. When you're racked by addiction and sinful habits, pursue God and don't stop. All it takes is a conscious decision on your part to go for it. And, and it may just take a little extra than what you're currently doing right now. I hear the Spirit's voice saying, draw near. Draw near to me. And I will draw near to you. He's waiting. Are you ready? Would you all stand with me for a moment? I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Because I know that there may be some here this morning that this has spoken to you and maybe you're ready to just leave the complacency behind and begin to go after God with all of your heart. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads. And... I'm just going to pray this prayer and give you an opportunity to repeat after me. And if this is something that when you hear my words, is something that resonates with you, then just go ahead and say it out loud as a congregation. And I believe that God will hear the sincerity of your heart. And pray this, Father, please forgive me for my complacency. Go ahead and say that out loud right now. Father, please forgive me for my complacency. Please forgive me for my spiritual laziness. Please bring me back to my first love. I make the decision today to seek you with all of my heart, even when it's inconvenient. I realize, Lord, that I need you to help me. because I can't sustain this on my own. So I'm asking you, Lord, to fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit and light a fire in me that attracts others to your light. Hallelujah. Yes, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.